If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Psalm 113. Uh, we've been going through the uh, Psalms this summer uh, with two kind of goals in mind. Obviously, we want to learn whatever the psalmist is trying to teach us in that psalm. But also in that same way, we're trying to learn by the different styles, the different genres of psalms in how that teaches us to pray and how it teaches us to worship. And so we looked at some wisdom psalms, we looked at a couple uh, laments, and we looked at some uh, psalms of thanksgiving, and now we're in psalms of praise. And so here's my confession to you. Um, I hate talking about praise and worship, uh, which is kind of problematic for a pastor, um, I recognize. But the reason why I don't like it is because I've just pastored in a very tumultuous time with the idea of worship. And I think it came to a head for me. Uh, in my first pastorate, uh, Janine and I went to uh, South Africa. And uh, many things I could talk about in that trip. But one of the things we did is we, we worked at the soup kitchen, basically. And we went to uh, South Africa has the high, one of the highest violent crime rates in the world. And uh, this town that we were in had one of the highest, highest violent crime rates of South Africa. Okay, so we were in, you know, not the nicest neighborhood. And we were serving soup, which is kind of just like a rescue mission today, right? People would come, and it was in the afternoon, and so it was mostly women because the, the men should be working, and uh, kids, and they would get a gospel message, and they would uh, bring coffee cups, mugs. They'd bring their own, you, you know, tinsels for the soup, and then they would come up, and you'd serve them some soup. And uh, so we were a part of this and, and involved in it, and this big vat of soup that I, be honest with you, could not even attempt to try, and all these people coming for the soup of that day, and the ladies, uh, the moms, they would try to sneak in some Tupperware, and uh, so that they could take more than, and they would take, they wouldn't eat the soup, they'd take it home to feed their family that night, and so there we were, just this just day of ministry, and many other days of ministry, and I came back to my pastorate in, up in the mountains of, of Idaho, and I was sitting in my office, and somebody came into the office that week after returning from this missions trip, and she wanted to talk to me about the drums. And so she laid into me for, I don't know, what seemed like a decade, uh, on the evils of the drums and how loud the drums are and all these different things about the drums and the worship of the drums and all this stuff. And she left my office and I began to weep. And I just said to myself, surely there is something better I could be doing with my life than talking about drums. And I, I admit there's just something that happened in my heart that day that every time I have this conversation, and it's probably weekly in ministry still to this day, that I just instantly just kind of go, I'm going to punch you, which is not a great response for a pastor. And so... I don't, I don't like talking about this, but worship, praise, is more than what happens here on Sunday morning. So let me just give you a broad definition. Worship is an active response to God whereby we declare his worth. Can we just, just go over there? Just, it's active. It's a response, right? God does something, we respond, and we're declaring his worth. And it happens in a lot of different ways with or without drums with or without a corporate gathering, worship happens, should happen every day, all the time. Okay, so as we talk about that aspect of worship, not just Sunday morning, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. 
Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks down uh, on the heavens and the earth? He rises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her a joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. A little bit of background on this psalm. It's a section of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. Hallel, praise, right? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallel, to praise And this section of psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, was sung at all the great, or the three great feasts in Israel. So um, at the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of New Moons, and the Passover. And what's significant about that is that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was having Passover with his disciples, and they probably begun the evening by singing this psalm, and probably sang through the psalm. And so Psalm 113, he raises the poor. In Psalm 114, it's about the exodus. Psalm 115 is more of a corporate praise. And we're going to look at that next week. Psalm 116 is personal thanksgiving. Psalm 117 is very short, but it's all about world vision, which is amazing because it's probably the psalm that Jesus sang as he headed out to the garden. And Psalm 118 is a festival procession. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, but it's responsive in nature, and we're going to look at that one as as well. So just kind of the way of of Psalm 113, it's it's an idea of God raises the poor, and we have three parts of this psalm. God is to be praised, God looks down, and God raises up. And so to put that just kind of in in a sentence, God is to be praised, Because he looks down and he loves us so much that he raises us up. God is to be praised because he looks down and he loves us so much that he raises up his people. So let's look at this psalm. Uh, God is to be praised. And so here he says right here, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. C.S. Spurgeon wrote, how can we pray for God's mercy for the future if we don't bless God for his love in the past. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes our prayers become just very much like next thing that's coming along the line that we need. The next problem, the next situation, the next overwhelming feeling. And and before we go to that next thing, let's stop and praise God for what he's already done in the past. Let's just praise him. And this is an amazing book with an amazing story of how God delivers his people and how he loves his people. And so let's constantly just be praising him for that. Second, praise him, servant of the Lord. You know, it's just interesting, the the repetition in these first two uh, verses. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we have this repetition that is going throughout here, and it, it reminds us of the importance of praise. Like, I... I said I, I don't like talking about this because then we got to get into, you know, what is the style, what is the way, how do we do it, and all this. But just back up for a minute 
And can we just see from Scripture just the importance of praising God? Okay, the, the psalmist is just, just knocking us over here. And, and don't miss it. He's saying, stop. Praise the Lord. He doesn't say praise the Lord if. He doesn't say praise the Lord in this situation. He just, just stop and praise the Lord. And so he repeats it. There's an obligation for us to praise. If God has done this, then stop and praise him. I've shared this story before, but when I was very first a pastor and I was very young, um, the senior pastor came to me as a youth pastor. He said, on Friday, you're going to be the POD, the pastor on duty. Okay, whatever. But what that meant was I took all the people that came in the door on Friday and I was the pastoral counselor, which you know, I was all of young 20s. And this one guy came in one time and he wanted to talk to the pastor and I brought him into my office. And he told me a story of how he grew up as a Christian and how God had given him a wife and this beautiful home and he lost it all. His wife left him, he lost his home. He's just, everything. He says, where? I just don't see where God is in all this. And, and he just kept questioning. And I was thinking, uh, not prepared for this. This is pre-seminary. And I said, you know, I just started giving this talk. I said, do you believe that, that God, well, yeah, I believe that God exists. You believe that God loves you? Yeah. Do you believe he sent us? Yeah, I've heard all that. I believe that. Do you believe he died for you? Yeah, but, but, but I said, well, just stop. If God did all that, shouldn't that be just enough to praise him right then? I mean, honestly, if God didn't do anything else for you, except that he sent his son to pay for the price of your sins so that you might be redeemed and live with him forever. If God didn't, if he didn't heal any of your diseases, if he didn't bless you in any other way, if, if, if you lived alone on a mountain all by yourself and never experienced any of the blessings that people, t- if that's all he did, is he worthy to be praised? Now, I was pretty young then, and I've since, you know, kind of reviewed my advice, and I'm still okay with it. So there's, there's, God has already done enough for us to praise him. It's our obligation. It's also our need to call others to it. If this is true, if we should be doing it, then we should be calling other people to join in it with us. And the reality is the reason why the psalmist repeats it so many times is because we have a tendency to fall away from it. Some of you can remember times in your life where you felt closer to God or where praise came easy, and maybe now it's difficult, and you say, well, God seems to have gotten far away. No. We have a tendency to fall away from it. I think this also reminds us of the frequency in which we should do it. And he even says it there, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So that's pretty much all day, right? And he says, uh, from the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised, right? From this time forth and forevermore. So all day, every day, forever. That's the, that's the time frame. Praise the name of the Lord. Uh, the, the, the name, that, that phrase is, is used uh, three times. Uh, right in the first two verses, it's repeated. And uh, it, when you, you have something repeated, you kind of stop. What's it talking about? The name uh, in Jewish cultures was very important. It talked about your character and your identity. 
And so he's, he's talking about what needs to be praised here is, is God's character, his identity, his actions, who he is. That's who we praise. So that's the, the first part. God is to be praised. Second, God looks down. So he says in verse 4, the Lord is, on, is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord God who is seated on high, who looks down? on the heavens and the earth. God looks down. Why does he look down? Well, first of all, the psalmist says, because of his glory. And let me just take a minute to just kind of define this a little bit. I want to, sometimes we use words in church and we all go, yeah, I know what that means, but don't ask me to define it because I don't really know what it means. The word glory, one definition, the singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. Really, that, that definition, just the, it's just God. It's singular to God, glory, and it has consequences for man, a mankind. In other words, God is on high and we are not. And let me give you two examples. Remember when Isaiah comes face to face with God's glory, what is his reaction? He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Like the consequences are, I recognize your glory, and I also recognize now that I'm in trouble. Now, another example of somebody who experienced God's glory was Moses. In fact, Moses asked to see God's glory. And in the result, he understands God's character more, more is revealed to him, and he asked God to join Israel back into the Exodus because God says, I'm going to back away here because you're all sinful. And Moses says, don't let us go without you. And so we have a different response to God's glory depending on our circumstances. I think the reason why we struggle with glory is that uh, in one sense, we don't quite understand what it means, what I'm trying to describe to you, but in the other sense, we overuse it. Like God's glory is one of the Sunday school answers. It's probably in the top three to five. Okay, you ask somebody a question, they're like, Jesus, no. God, no. Love, no. Because of his glory. It's like just one of those things that we just kind of throw out there. And you're like, go back and listen to the question, you know? And so here's the thing. So if I say, if I say, why did God deliver Israel? Well, I can't say Jesus there. Oh, because of his glory. Yes, but it's more than that. Why, why did God deliver Egypt? We've been reading through that. We went through Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus, and, and why did God deliver his people? Because he was concerned for the oppressed? Because he was fulfilling his promises? Because he was calling a people to himself? Because he wanted to bless Israel? He wanted to give them the promised land? Because he's displaying his power? Because he wants his name to be proclaimed among the nations? I mean, all this is true. So when we just simply say, because of God's glory, we just kind of swipe everything else away. And so God's glory is it's unique to him and it has consequences for us. But it's not just a Sunday school answer. God's character, his actions lead to a response or should lead to a response from us. So, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Second, we, he is high. He looks down because that's, his position is such. 
The reason that God looks down, the idea of being on high, is that that's his position. And it's unique to God. In fact, the psalmist asks in the middle of this, he says, who's like the Lord? Okay, and here you don't give a Sunday school answer here. There's just a simple, who is like the Lord? No one. That's it. He's unique in his position. There's nobody like him. Another verse talks about he is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is a great God, mighty and awesome. Right? There's just nobody like him. He's unique. Second, that, that idea of being high is powerful. Okay, that's the imagery here. He's on high. He has all the power. He's looking down. And sometimes, you know, we, just, we need to make sure before we, we bring Jesus down walking among us and, and his humanity and his incarnate, before we do that, let's just make sure we understand where God is in position. It's unique, it's powerful, and it's authoritative. Okay, that's the position he's in. It's a unique, high, authoritative position. Now, the word love is not in Psalm 113 in this sense. But as I looked at this psalm, what stands out of me is he looks down because he loves us. And let me just kind of flesh that out for you. Because the psalmist says, here's a God who's glorious, who looks down, and we're to praise him. Why are we to praise him? Because he is going to do something. He is a God of reversal. And those are the examples that he gives us at the end. Why does God do that? Because he loves us. And so I just want to just real quickly keep your finger here and turn to Exodus uh, 33. Just kind of understanding God's glory just a little bit more uh, before we understand this great reversal that he's doing. Exodus 33, this is um, again, uh, Exodus 33 follows Exodus 32. I know. That's why I make the big bucks here. They teach us that stuff in seminary. Okay? But what happens in Exodus 32 is the whole uh, Israel just gets this golden calf thing. You know, Moses up on the mountain receiving all this stuff, and they're worshiping an idol that they made. And Moses comes down, and God says, we're all in big trouble now. You're all, you're all busted. And so he says, look, I, I'm not going to go before you. And Moses pleads for his people, and he has this conversation with God in Exodus uh, 33, and we'll start in verse 12. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider Two, uh, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to them, to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall I be, uh, be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. 
What an amazing, what an amazing request. He didn't say, hey, show me how the story's going to end. He didn't say, show me your power. He says, show me your glory. And if we pick up the story in, in chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. That's the glory of God. His love, his character, his steadfast love. So God looks down. But God looks down and he interacts with his people. And so he raises us up. Look at those words again in 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. God raises us up out of our circumstances. He raises up the poor. Poor describes that person's circumstances. How they see themselves and God raises them up. And just to make sure that you see the, the fullness of how God raises us up from his circumstances, he takes the poor person and he sits them with princes. Right? They're at the king's table now. That's a huge reversal. And one that in our society we can dream of and some people have accomplished. But the reality is, in the culture that this is written in, that just didn't happen. You didn't, you didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make a better way. If you were born a shepherd, you were a shepherd. If you were born a farmer, you're a farmer. If you were born poor, you are probably going to die poor. But God does this incredible reversal thing with our circumstances Second, he does something, he raises us out of our condemnation. And I just want to show you this in the passage. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Some of your translations say from the dung pile. Okay? And what happens is, remember, we didn't have trash collectors in this day. So on that day, you would take your trash and your junk food and all your nastiness and you would take it outside the city to the dung heap. And you would throw it out there, and it would just be this constant burning. right? They're burning the trash. It was nastiness. It was disgusting. And that's why this refers to it as the ash heap, right? Because you've just got the ash. You've got the burning trash. But if you were so poor that you didn't have a place, you didn't have a farm, you might hang out over here. This was the outcast in, in, the, in the society hoping to get some scraps out of people's trash to eat, they were condemned. They were thrown out. And God says he takes those people from the outside and brings them in with God's people, the inside. He's a God of reversal. 
And I want to say that God is still doing that today. And if God is still doing that today, then his people, paying attention now, better accept those who God is bringing out. Right? Because he is, he is in the process of reversing people's stories. That's who he is. And third, he brings us out of our condition. One of the reasons I probably haven't preached on this psalm very much is because of verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. You see the reversal there, the contrast. And I know that as I preach this, there are those who have suffered under that condition of not being able to have children. And so your ears perk up and you say, well, what about me? God hasn't done that for me. And so let me just kind of wrestle with this. These reversals are imageries of what God does. He's not saying this is what I do in every life, every time. Not everybody who's poor gets to sit with princes in this lifetime. Okay? Not everybody who's condemned you know, gets, to, gets that full you know, status back in life in this world, but in the world to come. Not every Christian mother who can't have children is given children in that sense. So think here more of our barren hearts. God is in the place of taking that barren, callous, uninterested, dead heart and bringing it back to life. God is in the place, uh, think of barren families. Those families who, yes, they had children, but those children have long since walked away from the Lord. And, and I, I walk alongside many of you who are hurting for their children, whose children are not walking with the Lord. They're not interested in the things of God. And I want to just stop and say, hey, let's remember that God is a God of reversal. That God can change hearts. And think also of our own barren story. For we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so God has breathed life into our own stories. And I think one of the things that we need to be reminded of by just way of teaching, and I just want to take just a moment on this, there's an overarching story in the Bible, God's meta story, his big story. And from the beginning, we talk about this all the time here, folks, but in the first two chapters, everything was the way it was supposed to be, right? In the last two chapters, everything's the way it's supposed to be, and we live in this upside-down world. And God has this amazing story that he's bringing all this stuff to completion. And one of the things, right at the, out of the gate, right, they sin. And God comes in and says, all right, you know, you're going to be going on your belly and uh, there's going to be pain in childbirth, and you're going to be fighting with the, the weeds, and here's the, here's the curse, but the seed, the seed of woman is going to step on the head and of the serpent, and there's this promise in there. The seed, okay? What's the very first thing that happens with Adam and Eve's seed? Cain kills Abel. Satan says, oh, here's where the promise is? Let me just intervene in this story. What now? God brings another. 
And then you look at the story of the Bible. How many barren women are there in this story? Why? Because there's a meta story going on where God has made a promise and Satan is trying to crush that promise. And God overcomes. He's a God of reversal. And so when you look at this, look at the meta story. And I place myself in that story. And when I'm a part of the story of bringing God's light to other people, it's like a wave of God's story just overcomes me. But if you have your bulletins here, just pick up your bulletins for a second. Open them up. Okay, and I've got those, I've got those stories on here, right? Here's God's meta story. God's on the top. Where am I? On the bottom. Now, here's what we're doing in society over and over and over again. Flip it around. When I put myself at the top of the story, and I make God subsequent to my story and say, you've got to do all this stuff for me. And what I have done is exactly what Satan said to Eve. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. You get to choose good and evil. So I put myself on the story. And I just want to remind you this morning, please flip that back around. God is the king of the story. And I have a little part in it. Don't misunderstand your place in God's story. Here is a shocker to our culture, and it can't be said enough. It's not about you. It's God's story. And know that he is to be praised because he is the God who is above who loves us enough to raise us up. And he is in the process of doing that to all of his children. And ultimately, it will be fulfilled at the end. But if you're a part of the story, praise God that you're a part of the story. Don't wrestle with him because he's not doing everything for you in the story. Praise God. Praise him at the beginning of the day. Praise him at the end of the day. Praise him today and tomorrow and forevermore. Praise God because he loves you enough that he doesn't just look down, but he changes your story to be a part of his story. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this morning. And uh, we, just, we just ask you to help us to humble ourselves before a living God. And we recognize that you jump in and you look down and you jump in and you raise us up. So God, I just pray for those who are just fighting against you, who are still wanting to be king of their own area, that they would just bow their knee, that they would just humble themselves before you. God, recognize that you are the king of kings, that you are the only one that is to be praised, that you are high and above each one of us, and that we would daily just praise you for who you are. God, let the praises flow from your people. Let the praises flow from this church, from the way that we interact with people, the way that we address one another. May we praise God for what he, who he is and what he's done. God, thank you that you love us enough that you just don't leave us in the ash heap, but you bring us out. God, may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.